Good morning. It's good to be with all of you here. Um, and we are in our last week of a series we've been doing on forgiveness. And some of you that have been here, maybe heard some of the lessons, may have been thinking the entire time, what about the idea of righteous anger? Uh, and so we're finally going to get there. So if that's what you've been thinking, we are there this morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, open up to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And as you turn there, let me pray for us. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have given us everything that we need for life and godliness. I pray that you would fill me full of the Holy Spirit to teach this morning. I pray for all of us hearing this, that you would fill us full of the Holy Spirit to listen, to apply, to be changed, to be transformed from one degree of glory into the next so that we can be conformed more and more to the image of Christ. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Aristotle said this, To be angry with the right person, to the right degree, at the right time, for the right purpose, in the right way, this is not easy. And that is obviously true. But Paul gives us some instruction in Ephesians chapter 4 about a way that we can be righteous with our anger and not slip into sin. And we want to focus on it this morning. If you study the book of Ephesians, one of the major themes that you'll see come out is the importance of unity among believers, that God puts a high premium on this. But because we're still sinners, even after we put our faith in Christ, there are going to be times where we hurt each other, we sin against one another, we offend each other. And how do we handle this in the appropriate way? What about when we have anger and we really think, I know I've had sinful anger before, but this time I feel like I'm angry and I'm angry with a righteous cause. How do you handle it in the right way? And I think biblically speaking, there's at least three things that we need to be reminded of. That righteous anger, it should be short, it should be slow, and it should be spiritual. And I'll explain more about that as we come to each point. So Ephesians chapter 4, and let's start in verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And so Paul starts by just making this very important point. Even if you know for sure that you're angry at somebody, but that all of your anger towards that person is righteous, you better steward it well. You better handle it quickly. You better, in one sense, handle it like the proverbial hot potato. Because if you hang on to even righteous anger too long, it will fester. It will spoil. It will quickly turn into an unrighteous type of anger. And so you've got to be quick. Now, do not take this verse, don't take any verse in the Bible, and interpret it in a wooden, literal fashion. Okay? Do not let the sun go down in your anger. If you took this, and you took it very literally, if you got angry today, as soon as the sun sets, you got to deal with it before then, oh, or now you're sinfully angry. Here's why that doesn't work. What if you lived in northern Alaska, and during the summer, the sun never goes down? You get six months. Oh, you sinned against your wife? Take six months. There's no hurry. But in the winter... The sun doesn't even come up for months. How do you handle that one? What Paul is trying to say, deal with your anger as soon as you can. I have mentioned before a couple of times that the first two or three years of my wife and I's marriage, we fought a lot, and uh, we were both pretty type A, but oftentimes when we would get into an argument, she would say, I need some space to deal with this. And she was actually pretty right and pretty wise. I was still struggling a lot to grow in wisdom. And I'd say, no, 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 we're going to handle this now. 
right now. And one of the verses that I would quote to her to try to prove my point is, don't let the sun go down in your anger. I want to deal with it now. And sometimes, literally, she's like, I need to get away. I need to think. I need to have you out of my face so I can pray and deal with my own heart. And I would almost aggressively pursue her. And that didn't help the matters. It usually is not like when I kicked the bathroom door in. I'm not sure I actually ever did that, but I thought about it. That didn't help her deal with her sinful feelings better. So there's an appropriate time and space to give one another some energy that can be focused not on the other person, but on God alone. But then here, here's the key. As I started to grow and repent and say, okay, Lena, I'll give you time. Go away. Work on it. One of the things that she would do is she would. She'd go away. She'd pray. She'd forgive. She'd get over it. But she'd never come back and give me closure. And so maybe hours later, she's just folding laundry. And I'm like, hey, can we talk? She's like, about what? I was like, about the big fight we had this morning. She's like, oh, yeah, I'm over that now. Thanks. It would have been nice if you let me know. So you have to reconcile. You have to talk. But at times, there can be time to give one another space. We've already talked about the verse, Proverbs 19, 11. You don't have to flip there, but the idea is it's glorious when a human being can just overlook a fault because God overlooks so many of our faults. But when you can't overlook it, and here's my personal litmus test, when you wake up the next morning and it's still bugging you, you need to talk about it. You need to have conversation. John Calvin said it this way, don't cherish anger too long in your mind or allow it sufficient time to become strong. Usually, if you just hang on to the anger, it doesn't go away. It tends to grow. So the first thing is anger, if it's going to be righteous anger, it should be short. Don't tell yourself, well, because this is righteous anger, I have a right to nurse it and hang on to it and keep replaying the tapes in my mind. Not a good idea. Righteous anger will turn into unrighteous anger if you don't deal with it quickly. The second point would be this. Righteous anger is slow. It's slow. A famous verse in James chapter 1, verse 19, probably many of us are very familiar with, that we should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Okay? I want us to look at a couple of Proverbs together. So if you have your Bibles, let's flip to Proverbs chapter 14. If you want to keep your finger in Ephesians 4, we're going to come right back. But flip over to Proverbs chapter 14. Proverbs chapter 14, and listen to verse 29. Proverbs 14, verse 29. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts in folly. Look at 15, verse 18. Chapter 15, verse 18. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Chapter 16, verse 32. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who take, rules his spirit than he who takes a city. So if some of you men, you think you're strong, you think you're disciplined, and you can accomplish major feats with your physical strength. Solomon says, you want to accomplish a real feat? Tone down your anger. Control your own spirit. That's better than being some great warrior that can conquer a city. Flip over to chapter uh, 29. One more. Chapter 29, verse 11. A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. And when the Bible uses the word fool, a good layman's definition of what does it mean to be a fool, it's a practical atheist. It's somebody who may say they believe in God, 
but they don't act like they believe in God. That their life actions show they're acting as if God doesn't exist. A fool will give full vent to all his anger. If he thinks it, he's going to let it fly. So let's go back to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4, and look at verse 27, what it says. And give no opportunity to the devil. This is why even righteous anger is dangerous. Righteous anger can be good, it can be holy, but even there it's dangerous because if you let it turn into sinful anger, if you just let people hear all the anger that you have at them, unmitigated, Satan loves to get involved in conflict between human beings and especially among Christians. Satan's number one goal is to drive a wedge between our relationship with Father God. But if he can't do that, he wants to drive a wedge between Christians and other Christians. If you do a little short study of the epistles in the New Testament and look at all the different times that it talks about Satan, most of the time it comes up, Satan is mentioned in the context of humans having conflict, Christians having conflict with one another. We need to take this very seriously. Now, why is it foolish? Why is it practical atheism to give full vent to our anger? Because one of the things that the Old Testament makes so clear repeatedly about God is this. God is slow to anger. Do you remember when God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 34? The Lord, the Lord God, and he lists out attributes about himself. He's compassionate, he's gracious, and he's slow to anger. And that short little exposition, so to speak, of God's character is repeated eight or nine times throughout the Old Testament. And guys, just think about it practically. What would happen on planet Earth if God was quick to anger? Let's make it more personal. What would happen in your life? What would happen in my life if God was quick to anger? We wouldn't be here, right? How many good opportunities have I given God in my life since I've been a Christian to throw a lightning bolt personally at me, deserving of anger? And yet he's merciful, yet he's kind, yet he's patient. And if he's that way, we should be the same way. Now, let me, let me try to give an example. It may seem strange at first, but I actually think it'll be helpful. 20-plus years ago, when 9-11 happened, and it came out pretty quickly, there was this mastermind behind the whole thing named Osama bin Laden. I added Osama bin Laden to my weekly prayer list. I didn't pray for him every day, but I did pray for him about once a week. And here's what I would pray for him almost every day. I didn't spend much time, excuse me, almost every week. I would pray this, God, would you save Osama bin Laden? Now, some of you may think that's a crazy prayer, but you ever heard about a guy, a religious terrorist named Saul that got converted for killing Christians, became Paul? So I thought, Lord, what if you did something like that again? Save Osama bin Laden. But there was a, there was a second part to my prayer. God, if you're not going to save him, would you kill him? Would you put a cruise missile in his cave or something like that? Now, why was I praying that? He was an evil guy. He's hurting people. He's terrorizing people. There, there's a right place for justice in the world. And it's right to pray for those things. And I was praying that. Now, imagine, though, imagine if I hadn't prayed about my angry feelings toward this terrorist. I won't mention any names, but I bet some of us have known people like this, maybe Vietnam veterans. 
that had some very terrible experiences. Maybe they were prisoners of war. Maybe they were tortured. And now they're almost prejudiced and racist against anybody from the country of Vietnam. And obviously that's not right, but you can understand why it happened, right? You get angry at one person. You don't steward it well. You let it grow. You let it fester. And the next thing you know, you hate a whole nation. Terrible way to be. That could have happened in my heart. I could have started hating all Muslims. But part of what I was trying to do was steward my anger, pray it. And guys, if you've got somebody, and they're probably a lot closer than somebody living in another country, that you feel anger towards, one of the best things you can do is pray for them. and Pray that God would help you have grace to steward that anger in the right way. Okay? Listen to John Stott. Satan loves to lurk around angry people hoping to exploit the situation to his own advantage by provoking them into hatred or violence or a breach of fellowship. Think about this, and I'm not going to ask anybody to stand up and share a testimony this morning so you can be really honest with yourself. When's the last time that you said something out loud really stupid that almost as soon as it was out there, you wished that you could reach and take it back? And maybe you even said, as soon as you said it, I shouldn't have said that. I'm sorry, that was stupid. I didn't mean that. You started trying to self-edit. Maybe he was like, I, I didn't say that. I bet for a lot of us, it was when we were angry. When your emotions get going, it's very tempting to fly off the handle and say something we later regret. And Satan can be insidious in those type situations. Warren Wiersbe said this, When Satan finds a believer with the sparks of anger in his heart, he fans these sparks he adds fuel to the fire, and he does great damage to God's people. Remember 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, that talks about Satan. He's like a roaring lion prowling around looking for little Christians to devour. And anger is a way that he can do it. So even if you have righteous anger, be slow to get there. And once you get there, deal with it quickly. Be short. Now the third point with this, righteous anger is spiritual. And really what I mean, it's spirit-filled. Maybe here's the bottom line. And this, if, you only, if you want one practical summary from today, here it is. Only get mad at sin. When is it right to be angry? When you're angry at sin. Matthew Henry said it this way. If we'd be angry and not sin, we must be angry at nothing but sin. When somebody says something or somebody doesn't say something that you thought they should have said. When somebody does something or maybe somebody doesn't something you think they should have, and you start to feel angry, and you're wondering, is this righteous anger, or is this sinful anger? Let me just go ahead and help you. Nine times out of ten, it's going to be sinful anger. When in doubt, sinful anger. But if you're like, no, 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 I really think this time it's righteous anger, here's the litmus test. Is what this person did or said or didn't do or didn't say, was it sinful? And if it was sinful, then maybe you have a right to be angry. If not, you do not have a right if you want to be like God in your anger. Does God get angry at things that aren't sinful? Then neither should we. John Calvin, there's three ways that we can sin in our anger. Three ways that our righteous anger ceases to be righteous anger. First, we can be overly sensitive. That's my term, the way he said it was, to be angry for little or no reason. The second thing is to overreact, to go too far in the response. Or three, to be angry at others rather than yourself, right? Have you ever said this phrase? Well, they started it. Well, what you said made me angry. Be really careful if people have that much control over you. Okay. 
Hendrickson says this, the more angry every believer is with his own sin, the better it will be. What, what if that was our mindset? Every time there was a conflict, a tension, something awkward with another person, that we really obeyed Matthew chapter 7, let me get the log out of my own eye but try, before I try to walk over there and get the tiny little speck out of their eye. Let me see my anger. Let me see my sin, whatever it may be, and be angry at that, hate that. And then, after I've really done a lot of work of repenting of all my sin and hating my sin and being angry at my sin, then I'll get around to being angry at your sin. Think about how much better Christian fellowship would be if we all took that route, okay? Now, how do you have spiritual righteous anger? You only get mad at what God gets mad at, sin. And then secondly, love has got to be the driving force, guys. Love has got to be the driving force. Ephesians 4, skip back to verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. There is a time to go rebuke somebody, confront somebody. But guys, it can't just be a truth bomb. It can't just be, well, I needed to get this off my chest. I've been thinking about this. I needed to dump it on you. The goal has got to be known. I wanted to say this to you because I really think it would help you. I really think it may hurt in the short run, but in the long run, it'll help. It'll be a blessing. It'll edify. It'll build you up. Okay? Skip down to verse 29. Verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Now, a lot of times when people look at this verse, they'll just look at that first little phrase, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, and they're like, don't say any cuss words. Listen, I'm not saying we should say cuss words, but I'm just saying I don't think that's the main thing on the Apostle Paul's mind right then because look at the context. He's talking about say things that help people. Say things that build people up. And if you come with sinful anger, even if you're speaking the truth, but you do it in a way that tears people down, that's corrupting talk. You might be saying the truth not in love, and you could be corrupting. Matthew Henry has this phrase, it's helped me so much, that we have to learn how to say the hardest truth in the softest ways. Christians should not back off from lovingly confronting one another with the hardest truth. But we ought to think of the most loving, gentle, kind, patient, respectful way that we can say it. And guys, part of this is just practical wisdom. If somebody comes to you, have you ever been rebuked? Okay? And have you ever been rebuked by somebody who's angry? At some level, in that moment, you don't care that much if it's righteous anger or sinful anger. Neither one feels very good in the moment, does it? And if somebody comes in rebuking you when they're angry, even let's just say you're super logical. You're very much a thinker. You're very cerebral. You're not very in touch with your emotions. So you can sit there in a sense and you can objectively take, well, technically what they're saying is true. I'm wrong. But if they're just letting you have it, if there is venom and maybe some spittle coming as they give it to you, it's really hard to sit there and take it well, is it not? So part of the practical wisdom here, guys, is when we can come and deliver hard truth to people, but do it in a very gentle, kind, respectful way, there's just a better chance they'll actually listen to us. They'll actually receive it. They might actually repent. Praise the Lord. Our relationship might get better. 
The Bible is so practical. It's so helpful. Here's another question that I ask myself sometimes that has been very helpful to me. When I feel anger, and sometimes we're like, oh, I'm not angry, I'm just frustrated. You ever use that one? And it's like, you know what frustration is? Baby anger. Okay? It's just anger's little cousin. And so if I feel some anger, frustration coming up in my heart at someone, and I'm trying to decide, is this righteous or is this sinful? Do I need to work with this or do I need to repent of this? Here's a question I'll ask myself. Am I more frustrated with this person or am I more grieved with this person? And I do think there's a subtle difference in the semantics there. Because to me at least, when I talk about being frustrated with somebody, it's like something that they are doing is getting on my nerves and I'm sick of it. They're driving me crazy. Right? It's not good for me. If I'm grieved with this person, it's like this person is sinning. And they're hurting, yes, they're hurting me, but they're hurting themselves. This is a cursed way to live. It's not going to end well for them. I'm brokenhearted. Which one sounds like it's more driven by love? Frustration or grief? And I think righteous anger has a lot more grief in it than it does frustration. Hate from one human being to another human being, it's not clean energy. It'll motivate you for a while, but it'll also corrupt you. Another author named Smead said this, God's anger has no malice. Again, think about the extreme example I used, me praying for Osama bin Laden. It's not that I had all this hatred in my heart towards him. It was more, I didn't want him to hurt other people. And I did want something good for him if the Lord would do that. Okay? Again, we've said this before, there is a place for vengeance. There's a place for the authorities to be brought in. Whether that's the kids bringing in mom and dad, whether that's church members bringing in the elders, whether that's you bringing in the state government. But leave vengeance to others and try to handle your anger in the most gentle, kind way you can. Let me try to give you another practical example. I've mentioned before my wife and the hard, not good relationship that she had with her father who was very passive. He was also very manipulative. And so early in our marriage, what he used to do is he would call they would talk on the phone. Actually, my wife would call, and he would answer, and he'd say, you know, I just miss you so much. I want to see you so bad, but I know you guys are so busy, and y'all never have time. And she would get off the phone, and she's like, he's doing the same thing he's been doing to me for 10 years, and she would be pretty furious. I will not make a judgment on if it was righteous or not, uh, but she was not very happy with the decade of manipulation. And I'd get on the phone with him. I was like, hey, how's your week been? He said, oh, I had the whole week off. I've just been sitting around here fishing. I'm like, if he really wanted to see us, he'd come see us. And so as my wife taught and I talked and prayed about how do you handle this anger so that it doesn't fester, it doesn't come bad, we came up with a practical plan. And here was the practical plan. The next time your dad starts to say anything to either one of us about, I just miss y'all, but y'all, we just cut him off, interrupting, graciously interrupting, and just say, hey, dad, anytime you want to come visit us, we would welcome you. You don't even have to call first. You can just show up. And if money's a problem, we'll pay for your gas. Hotel a problem, stay at our house. Now, what were we doing there? We were trying to catch him in his manipulation and his lie. Over about the next 20 years, I think he actually came twice. He didn't really want to come. But he quit the manipulation tactics. And it was an easy way to call him on it, not have to get angry, not have to have a shouting match, but also push back a little bit. Does that make sense? 
find the most loving way, the most gentle way you can to confront the other person in a way that will catch them in their sin and protect you. And guys, done rightly, you'll see the other person start to soften a little bit. Now, a couple more verses here, okay? Look at verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Now, guys, this gets us back to what we've mentioned a couple of times before. Forgiveness, reconciliation, it's really a two-step process. The first step is just really between me and God, offering forgiveness, desiring to forgive, yearning to forgive, leaning into forgiveness, being eager to forgive. Lord, I forgive this person in my heart. And even going to the person, I'm willing to forgive you. I'm offering you forgiveness. But for there to be full reconciliation, there has to be repentance on the other person's part. It takes two to tango. And when they really repent, you can grant forgiveness. The relationship can be restored. I think that we've all heard of the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's a great rule. Jesus said it, so it has to be great, right? But here's one that I think I think we could even say is better. The platinum rule, I'll call it. Do unto others as the Lord Jesus has done unto you. If we are often praying the Lord's Prayer, meditating on the truths therein, remembering how great and how wide and how deep and how full and how eternal His grace, His mercy, and His kindness is to us for the sins we confess and repent of and the sins that we can forget to confess and repent of. He's so gentle. He's so patient. He's so kind. We should turn and do that with others. Psalm chapter 30, verse 5. Don't flip there, okay? Psalm chapter 30, verse 5. It speaks of God's anger, and it says, His anger is but for a moment. It's quick. It's short. But His favor is for a lifetime. What would people say about you? What would people say about me? Probably you've heard this phrase before, guys. Bitterness is like the poison pill that I take and I wait for the other person to die. They may not even know I'm angry at them. I'm over here stewing. Guys, it's not just this glorifies God. It's not just that this makes church fellowship better. It's better for you personally to forgive, to be gracious, to initiate. When you have the sinful anger, I mean, repent. When you have the righteous anger, handle it quickly. Maybe the greatest example in the Bible of God's wrath just think, when you think of God's wrath, what do you think of? And I'll tell you what comes to my mind maybe first is Sodom and Gomorrah. A wicked city, and God literally blew them off the map. But do you remember even how that story started in Genesis chapter 18? God and two of his angels said, we're going to go down and look. Now think about it. God's omniscient. He doesn't have to go down and look at anything. But what was God doing? It was almost like God's like, I don't want to wipe them off the face of the map. I hope it's not true. I'm going to go in a sense and look and see, is it really as bad? God was going the extra mile to make sure before he applied his justice. And guys, maybe most importantly, God's love is flavored with so much love, so much kindness, so much compassion. Mark chapter 3, verse 5. If you're still like, I'm not sure. What's this uh, righteous anger look like? 
Go later and look at Mark chapter 3, verse 5. And it's one of the times when Jesus is in the temple with the Pharisees, and there's a man with a withered hand, and the Pharisees are there. They're testing Jesus. They're like, I hope he heals him because we're going to call that a crime, and then we can arrest him. And it says that Jesus looks at them, and he's angry at them, but simultaneously he's grieved because of their hardness of heart. When you get angry, righteously angry at other people, there ought to be corresponding, mingled with it, love. Grief at people's hardness of heart. One more verse I want us to look at together. Flip back to Ezekiel chapter 33. Most of us have probably not spent a lot of time devotionally in Ezekiel lately. But Ezekiel chapter 33, let's flip there. And as you flip there, remember the quote that I've shared with us before from Martin Luther. Wrath is God's strange work. And what that means is God will show wrath. He's not afraid to show wrath. He's not against bringing judgment and justice. But that's not what he likes to do. That's not what he loves to do. That's not the norm. He likes to save. He likes to forgive. He likes to reconcile. And look at Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? You can hear the compassion of God coming through in the passage. If people continue to rebel against him, he will bring wrath. He will bring death. But he doesn't enjoy it. He's pleading with people. Repent. And guys, when we go, even in righteous anger, to confront somebody, there ought to be that same heart. I don't want to be angry at you. I want you to repent. I want to be reconciled. I'm pleading. You know, I said earlier, maybe the greatest example of wrath in the entire Bible is Sodom and Gomorrah. But that's not true. Even as I was working on my notes and I started to write it down, I'm like, I know this isn't true. There's a greater example. And the greatest example is the cross of Christ. When the Lord Jesus Christ went to the cross for all the sins of all his people of all time, mine and yours and everyone that would ever trust in him, and he hung there and literally hell came to Calvary that day and consumed him and burned out the righteous, just anger of God for the elect in the heart of Christ. And because of that mercy, because of that love, we get life, we get freedom, we get reconciliation with our maker. We should be eager to extend this same love and mercy to others. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are far too good to us. And we are far too comfortable, numb, at home with, used to, overly familiar with your love. I pray for myself. I pray for everybody listening. Would you please let there be a fresh sense of shock and awe and amazement that your love is really this deep, that your grace is really this wide. 
that your goodness and that your mercy is really this eternal, that we can be saved and forgiven and restored, redeemed and reconciled by grace alone, through faith alone, and our risen Savior alone. We pray all this in the name of Christ.